Well, my plan had been to move to Titus next, uh, but I'm not doing that. The more I worked on Titus, even though there's much distinctive about the book as a pastoral epistle, the more I saw that the themes of First and Second Timothy and Titus were so intimately interwoven and connected that it would be best really to have some distance between First and Second Timothy, a good deal of distance between First and Second Timothy and Titus before moving on to it. Um, Ephesians, because of its comprehensiveness, is a book that I've wanted to do with you on Sunday mornings, and so we are doing that. It has been a prayerful, prayerful decision, and I ask, if you will, to turn now to Ephesians, the first chapter. Before reading the first two verses, let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, as we introduce the book of Ephesians today, we pray that it will be gripping to our hearts, that we may see the movement of its themes, that we may understand its importance to us for our Christian living. But we pray for something more than that, because this is your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit will open hearts and accomplish in hearts and lives what we can only guess might be the need of the person next to us, that you would apply this truth week after week in ways that we cannot even comprehend, and that you would grow us as a congregation in holiness of life, and that we would see Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, more clearly. Will you do this for us, Father? You have told us in your word we have only to ask and that you delight to hear our prayers. And so we come through Christ the Mediator asking for this. And in his name, amen. Ephesians chapter 1. We should be quite excited that we are turning to another study of a a book of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, the first two verses, this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul had put his finishing touches on his papyrus manuscript. Now that letter was carried by Tychicus from Rome across the Aegean to the great port city of Ephesus, that great ancient pagan city. Tychicus, Paul's helper, carries two other letters as he goes, Colossians and Philemon, and the church now gathers at Ephesus, and the papyrus scroll is unraveled and is read before the congregation. Paul was well known to the Ephesians. He spent three years ministering in Ephesus. The elders wept at their last meeting with him in Miletus. In Ephesus, Paul had preached in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and so did the power of the gospel of God's sovereign grace challenge the paganism of the city that it resulted, you will remember, in a riot. The sales of the the silver statuettes of uh, the goddess uh, Diana of Artemis were, uh, were down because of Paul's preaching. And so there was a gathering instigated by some of the salesmen, And for two hours, they shouted in the great amphitheater, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! 
and Paul came close to losing his life. Now the congregation hears from the beloved Paul who had spent three years preaching the gospel to them, but now is imprisoned in Rome. And when the words are read, we can be sure that the Christians were awestruck at what they heard. What wonder, what worship, as for the very first time they heard the words of the first chapter, the second chapter, on through the sixth chapter of Ephesians. I have a request of each one of you, and this is my request, that each Sunday you will take in this epistle. That you will read this epistle through over and over again and read it as if you have never read it before. That you will hear it preached as if you have never heard it preached before. And as you hear these chapters, these first three chapters of doctrine and the last three primarily of application, as you hear these chapters, you will learn truth afresh and much that you have never learned before that will be applicable to your Christian living right where you are, where God has called you. Now, you know, it's been very hard for me to know what to call this series of sermons. I generally give a series a title. The themes are so magnificent, and there's so many of them in the book. Union with Christ, God's eternal purpose, the sovereignty of grace, our inheritance in Christ, fullness of blessing. The book really is about fullness in some ways. It's about treasure, the treasure we have in Christ and how this determines how we live now, our Christian lives. It's about the fullness of riches. Notice, for example, in chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul says in the midst of this prayer, chapter 3, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Or in chapter 4, verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Or if you would look at chapter 5, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so three times he speaks of fullness, the fullness that comes from the Father, the fullness of the Son, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so we really could call this the epistle of fullness, couldn't we? The book will lead you to maturity, to an understanding of your riches that you have in Christ. But there is something even more fundamental to the book than that. The key phrase of Ephesians is the phrase, in Christ, or similar phrases. And we find in Christ, in Him, in the Lord, and such like expressions, 35 times in the epistle. Now when I see that, I say, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand something about being in Christ. That's the key phrase. Well, where is our Lord Jesus? He's sitting on the right hand of the Father, interceding for us His people, and we are in union with him. So it seems to me that the most fundamental theme that encapsulates what Paul the Apostle wants you and for me also to get from this letter is our union with Christ who is in heaven. We are in Christ who is in the heavenly places. 
Hence the phrase, in the heavenlies, is used five times in the book of Ephesians. And as others have recognized, therefore, we may rightly call this book the Epistle of the Ascension. For what he wants us to see is that Christ has been raised from the dead, has ascended on high, and that we are in union with the ascended Christ, and that all spiritual blessings come from that union with the exalted, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, it is the epistle of the ascension. And Paul wants you, believer, to know that you are in union with Christ who is exalted to God's right hand. He wants you to understand what that means for the church, what that means for your everyday Christian living. And now as we look at the first two verses this morning, we can see the way in which Paul expresses himself indicates already this ascension predicate, this idea, this truth, this reality of the ascension of Christ and our union with him, and this recognition of fullness that comes from union with Christ. So will you first see with me, as we look at these first two verses, Paul's self-identity, Paul's self-identity. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, well, his very name should thrill every Christian. You remember that he had a Hebrew name, Saul, and a Roman name, Paul, as was common for young men of that day. His autobiography is expressed to us in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. In Philippians 3, 4 and following, he says, "...though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." Here was the Apostle Paul, this brilliant rabbi, this Orthodox Jew, zealous Pharisee, persecutor of the church. So we read in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts that he is the one who approved of the execution of Stephen. And then we read Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And this is the one who now writes to the church this loving, gracious, inspiring book of Ephesians. As A.T. Robertson put it, against his own wish and plan, Paul was seized and turned around. And that's true. Paul on the Damascus Road saw the risen Christ. Saul of Tarsus, his life was revolutionized because Christ, the risen Lord, showed himself to Paul. And then he commissioned Paul as an apostle to the nations. And now he preaches Christ crucified that he once hated and despised, preaches Christ risen from the dead that he once did not believe. And all that Paul had, all that he had had trusted in, all that he had gloried in, is now set aside for the sake of this Jesus who revealed himself to him on the Damascus road. So we continue to read in Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, "...what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ." 
And so it is with everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ that all that we once trusted we now count as loss that we may gain Christ Jesus. So the name is Paul. This is who he is, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Actually, did you notice Christ Jesus? Because the order is important. Paul did not know him as Jesus and then Christ. He knew him first as Christ, the exalted Lord, and then acknowledged Jesus to be this exalted Lord. And so the order in Paul is very important. He's an apostle. And in the specialized sense, an apostle presupposes that he was qualified for that office. And in order to be an apostle, one must have a commission directly from the risen Christ. He must have been an eyewitness of the risen Christ, must be specially endued with the Holy Spirit as God would lead his church into all truth, have a ministry confirmed by signs and wonders, And the apostles' ministry was foundational for the new covenant church. So as Westcott put it in his commentary, the title marks the writer as an accredited envoy of the Lord. So initially he comes to them and he says, my name is Paul and I'm an accredited envoy. What I write to you is by divine inspiration, hear what I say because it is God who speaks through me. Then he says, by the will of God. Notice it, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. There are no wasted words in the Bible, and certainly not with Paul. The will of God is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Seven times the will of God is spoken of in Ephesians, and Paul is keen for us to know that the sovereign will of God is really being done in this world. So Paul did not say, oh, you know, I think I'll be converted. And then I think I'll become an apostle, and I'll write letters by divine inspiration and send them to the churches, and I'll spend my time preaching and being shipwrecked and beaten up. Paul didn't say that. Paul did not call himself from darkness into light into God's service. Paul was dead in trespasses and sins. He could not call himself. But as he says in another place, it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It was the sovereign will of God. Can you not see that already this underscores the treasures that we have in Christ? What is behind these simple words? Well, the answer is Paul's encounter with the risen, ascended Christ, whose will is being done, who has called the apostle Paul to him, who has sent him out as an apostle. The fullness of revelation in this epistle is a gleaming gem sent down from the throne of grace. Already we see something of the fullness of Christ in this man's life. But we also see the treasure that we have in union with Christ more fully as we see secondly, this is the second thing, the identity of God's people. And we see the identity of God's people expressed in three ways. It's found here again in verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So he says we're saints. We're saints. A minister was traveling on a train and found himself, this was a a Protestant minister, found himself in a compartment with a group of nuns. And so they had some very interesting conversation and part of that conversation was about sainthood. So he, was, he found it very delightful to take the Dewey version, the Roman Catholic translation of the scriptures, 
and to go from verse to verse in order to demonstrate that every true Christian is a saint. You say, saints are not canonized Roman Catholics. Uh, Saints are not uh, people who live life better than the rest of us. Saints are all of God's people. It means to be set apart under the value of the blood of Christ. The holiness, the holiness of being set apart is the defining characteristic of God's people. The basic idea is that you are saints. You are consecrated to God. You belong to Him. Everything about you is His. And that's why He follows up by saying, you're saints and you are faithful faithful in Christ Jesus. From God's perspective you are saints. From the believer's perspective you are striving to live consistently with what it means to be a saint, a set-apart believer in Jesus Christ. You remember John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that one of his best characters is a man named Faithful. Faithful. Do you remember what happened to Faithful? He was in Vanity Fair, You live in Vanity Fair, by the way. Faithful was passing on to the celestial city, passing through Vanity Fair, just as you are, and Vanity Fair killed him. And he was faithful to the end. Now I wonder, is that your name? Is that my name? In the midst of Vanity Fair here in Lakeland, Florida, can others look at you and say, you know, he's faithful. He really does stand for Christ. He lives differently. He expresses himself differently. He really is faithful. Is that your name, I ask of you? So, we are saints, and we are called to be faithful. But then notice, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And how many times did I tell you that's found in the book? Thirty-five times already found in the very first verse. In Christ Jesus is the essential theme of Ephesians. And it's right here in the opening verse. The importance of that prepositional phrase simply cannot be overestimated. Look down with me as I mentioned some just in the first chapter in verse 3. All spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Verse 4, election in Christ. Verse 6, acceptance in the beloved, which means in Christ. Verse 7, in whom, that is in Christ, we have redemption and forgiveness. Verse 9, his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. Verse 10, God gathers all things in Christ. Verse 11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, which means in Christ. Verse 12, we are to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. Verse 13, in whom you also trusted, in whom you were sealed, which means in Christ. And that's just the first chapter. The emphasis is on our being in Christ. To that he adds a twofold blessing of the saints who are in Christ. Look at it in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, which is sovereign, unmerited favor. Now the Greek speakers and writers of the ancient world, when they would write a letter, they would put in their opening, rather than the word charis, which is found here, grace, they would put karain. 
which means rejoice. So in view of the coming of Christ, Paul the Apostle writes charis, grace, rather than karain. The words of common courtesy, says one commentator, become words of solemn blessing. The gospel changes even the greeting of the letter for the Christian. Wouldn't it be wonderful, by the way, if we greeted one another that way? You know, I hardly know what to do. People ask me all the time, how are you doing? Well, I don't know. How do I? Well, I'm okay. Well, not really. Uh, How are you doing? Well, I want to be honest. You know what I've come to do? I say, well, all the ultimate issues are in place. (laughs) But wouldn't it be much better if we would actually learn to greet one another, grace, brother, and peace, reminding us that we have grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Peace is the result of grace. It's a name of God Himself. Jehovah Shalom, Judges 6.24. The Lord our peace. And of course you will notice in verse 2 that Paul assumes the triune nature of God when he places Christ and the Father on equal plane. And you will see as we move on in Ephesians 1 that it's really structured by the Trinitarian nature of God. For those of you who were here last week and heard David Garner speak on the insider movement, remember the question that, frankly, I asked because I wanted him to tell you of how some insiders will treat the Trinity in Muslim lands. And they will say, well, you just need to set it aside because it's not important. Well, it was important to Paul. It structures the first chapter of Ephesians. It's everywhere in the Bible and all through the New Testament. And so through the Father and our Lord Jesus we have grace and peace. Perhaps Paul is not distinguishing too tightly between our objective peace in Christ and that subjective peace that follows. But though millions upon millions will go into a Christless eternity, you won't, believer, because you have peace with God. So the greeting reminds us of these things. Do you see then already that he emphasizes this ascension predicate? Take the blessings of the Christian life. They are all found in Christ. And Paul is going to stress the truth of the Christian's identity. And he is saying to us in this epistle, you know, if you're going to live the Christian life, you need to get straight who you are. You really need to get your identity straight. So 35 times he says you're in Christ. And then he goes on and in verse 5 of chapter 1 he says you're adopted into God's family. And in chapter 1 verses 22 to 23 he says you're part of the body of Christ. And in chapter 2 verse 19 he says you're no longer a stranger but a fellow citizen with the saints. And in chapter 2 verses 20 and 22 he says you're part of the temple of God. And in chapter 5, verses 22 and following, he says, you belong to the bride of Christ. And in chapter 6, he says, you're one who does battle against darkness in God's own armor. Who am I? I am this in Christ. I am all of this and more. So Paul stresses that we get our identity right. The Christian's identity is in Christ. In Him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and we live like spiritual paupers. Often, don't we? I'm in Christ. I'm all of these things. All of these things are true of me. And how often do I live like a spiritual pauper? One preacher mentioned um, having read about a couple in the newspaper that died of malnutrition. 
the police came and they investigated. They found that this couple had indeed progressively died of malnutrition. But as they poked around in the house, they went into the closet and they found that there were several bags, and I believe it was $40,000 stuffed in the bags. You scratch your head. Dying of malnutrition with $40,000 in bags in the closet? Something's wrong there. Well, something's wrong when I live like a spiritual pauper and I am in union with Christ and I am in God's family, part of the body of Christ. I'm a citizen with the saints. I'm part of God's temple. I belong to the bride of Christ and I'm dressed in the armor of God. Something's wrong when I live like a spiritual pauper or when you do and you're malnourished, when all of these things are true of you. That's what Paul wants you and me to understand. Well, those are the first two verses. We're not done. Third thing I want you to see, I want to give some incentives for studying Ephesians. Now, it's God's word that should be enough, but let me give you some incentives from Ephesians. Do you need assurance that Christ rules and reigns? We're tired and the work of the kingdom seems to go so slowly. It's arduous and our culture is disintegrating. What ground do we have to be encouraged? Well, in the very first chapter, uh, we read in verses 9 and 10, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And in verse 22 of the first chapter, and He put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. The cosmic reign and rule of Christ. He governs the universe in the interests of his church. Do you need to know that? That's an incentive for studying this book. Do you need to know that your vile sins are forgiven? We heard this morning in the assurance of pardon, Ephesians 1.7, which tells us in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And that theme He unpacks in most of chapter 2. Do you need to know reconciliation with God and with one another? Well, the wall of separation has come down. Jew and Gentile share in one spirit and are being built into a living temple. And we have direct access to God the Father through the Son. So we read in chapter 2, verse 18, For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do we need unity with one another? Well, in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, we have a portrait of Christ's heavenly ascent. And as He ascended, He poured out His blessings in triumphal procession upon his church. And the Old Testament language received gifts from men is now changed to gave gifts to men. The ascended Christ gives the ministry of the word that we might become mature, not remain infants, that we might know what to believe in this world. And so our church and lives should be determined by one motif, and that is taking hold of the Word of God. Disunity results in the sin of forsaking the Bible. Do we need holiness of life? Do you? Well, in chapter 4, 17 through 520, he stresses holiness in a variety of ways. Social holiness, that is, social holiness, the body, the church how we speak to one another, how we forgive one another. Sexual purity in chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, 
the Apostle Paul says you need to be holy in sexual purity. Our day is much like Paul's. In a pagan society, fornication was the norm. I just read now that Kentucky is following the other states and and, uh, and uh, legalizing what is called same-sex marriage. Well, it's not marriage. Never will be marriage. I don't care what the state calls it. It's not marriage. The problem is this. There are many churches who just say, let's cave in. Look, if people cohabitate before marriage, let's just begin to accommodate it. Now, look, if you're struggling with a sin of a sexual nature, please, that's not my point. My point is, yes, you're a Christian if you believe in Jesus. You struggle with temptation. We want to help one another. My point is, we cannot become paganized. The church cannot follow the world. Do we find that sexual purity is something with which we struggle, perhaps even more than our fathers and mothers in days gone by because of media? So believers must be warned to flee fornication and to live pure lives, holiness of life. Do we need to learn submission to one another? Do wives need to learn submission to husbands? Do husbands need to learn, learn to love wives? Children to be in relationships that are God-honoring with their parents and parents with children? Well, no pagan could have written what Paul writes in Ephesians when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He wants us to be holy in our marital relationships and in our families. Do you need to know how to fight the enemy of your soul, the evil one? Well, when we come to the last chapter of Ephesians, the apostle cites three passages from Isaiah, and Paul stresses in chapter 6 that we are armed with God's own armor and we engage in a holy battle. All of this is holiness of life. And that's what Paul the apostle is stressing in the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Yeah, I think we need the book. Don't you? There's an excellent article by one Peter Jones, how Ephesians killed my radical Christianity. Now, being a Christian is a radical thing. But radical Christianity has become popular language now, a kind of catchphrase, meaning that if we're real Christians, we'll do amazing things for Christ. Um, that we uh, all move to the inner city or we all go overseas or we all live in utter poverty so that we can give to the poor or we all become preachers and teachers. The point is that Ephesians stresses who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ and does not put a new law on us. The writer of the article adds, and I know there's some hyperbole here, but catch the point. The writer adds, if Paul were a modern preacher, he would follow this up with a call to evangelize or do missions or go give up all to the poor or change the world or at least your community or start a neighborhood Bible study. He would close Ephesians with a call to be radical. But the real Paul disappoints us. There's nothing in these chapters about doing amazing things for Christ. Paul is radical, but not in a way we like. He's radical about killing sin. He wants us to stop having fits of anger. He wants us to cut out our gossiping tongue. He wants us to be thankful in all circumstances. He wants us to pray. He wants us to get rid of greed. He wants us to make sure we keep our speech clean. All of this sounds pretty boring and hard. What sounds more exciting? A speaker talking about reaching your community for Christ 
or one talking about taming your wayward tongue. We don't like Paul's call to be radical because it is a lot easier to love the lost whom we haven't seen than our wife who we see every day. We don't like it because forgiveness is hard, chapter 4, verse 32. Fornication is easy, chapter 5, verse 3. We don't like it because we would rather be known for doing something amazing than be obscure and keep the peace, chapter 4, verse 3. We don't like it because he says a lot about submission and nothing about evangelizing the ladies at Starbucks. In the end, those calls to be radical aren't radical at all. They are just distraction. The Christian life is not about going someplace for Jesus or doing great things for him. It is being holy right where we are. It is loving our brothers and sisters in our churches. It is being faithful to our family obligations. It is working hard at our vocations in a fallen world. If we do this, we are being radical enough. Now, of course, Somebody's going to mistake me. You're going to go home, talk over dinner, and, and maybe have roast preacher or something. But <laughs> Christians, many Christians are called to go overseas. I pray that God will raise up a lot of missionaries here. Some are called to be preachers and teachers, and I pray that God will raise them up here. Some are called to give everything for the poor. Some are called to move into the inner city. But not all, and not most. Radical Christianity is a catchphrase. It's really guilt manipulation. It's a guilt manipulation movement that says all Christians should do these things. And I think Jones is essentially right. Look at Paul's epistles. Look at Ephesians. The truly radical thing to which he is right now calling every one of you who is a believer in Jesus. The truly radical thing to which he is calling every Christian, is holiness of life. Sexual purity, controlling your tongue, loving your wife, rearing your children in the nurture of the Lord, prayer, worship, hard work for Christ in your calling wherever it may be, maintaining the purity and peace of the church, that is the true radical nature of the Christian faith. Now, there's one other very important motive for studying Ephesians. And I'll save it for next week. (laughs) So let me close with this. There's something very interesting that some of you may not know about the book of Ephesians that will help us to take what we read here very personally. Notice how it's put here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus. In Ephesus is absent from some very important ancient manuscripts, copies of Ephesians, uh, such as Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. In Ephesus is just not found there. So some very early and important manuscripts of Ephesians don't have the location in Ephesus. It's left blank. Why? What might it mean to us? Well, the reason is probably this. The epistle was written to the Ephesians. When you read Ephesians, do you notice how few personal references there are? 
The Apostle Paul doesn't go through all these personal things that you might find in other letters. Why is that? Well, he wrote to Ephesians, but he did not write with the Ephesian Christians only in mind. He meant for all the Christians in the Roman province of Asia, and I don't think Asia, the Roman province of Asia is western Turkey. He intended for all of the Christians in the Roman province of Asia to read this epistle. So the epistle was copied and it was read in churches over a period of time, all over, starting with Ephesus and then moving out into other places. And when each church read it, they would fill in the blank. That's probably the meaning of Colossians 4.16. And when this letter has been read among you, meaning Colossians, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, which was probably Ephesians. So it's a circular letter. There's a blank there because he intended for all of these different churches to gather around and it's applicable to everybody. Well, that's true always of God's Word. But what does it mean for us? Perhaps more readily than any other epistle we can fill in the blank space. So we say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and so forth as the chapter goes on. So here today we can say this really stratospheric theology of Paul way up there in the heavenly places this really stratospheric theology is for you. This really stratospheric theology is for me. This identity in Christ is my identity. This call to holiness in this book is a call on my life. You fill in the blank. And that's the challenge. I place before you as we study the epistle this challenge to really get Ephesians down in your heart. Read it over and over. Get it way down deep. Hear it preached. And put your name in the blank. Will you do that? Will you? That sounded a little weak to me. (laughs) But I'm going to take it as a yes. Let's pray together briefly for the Lord's blessing on this series. As we turn to this book, Father, we ask that you will give to us a deep understanding of its truth and that all that we find here will minister to us. Sometimes we'll find some things that are incredibly exciting to us. Sometimes we find things that seem very pedestrian But it's always exciting to us because it comes from your fatherly hand. And we pray that as we study this book, the Holy Spirit will enable us to study it with hearts that really fill in the blank. This book is for me. May each of us say it in Christ's name. Amen.